The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight, as usual, is Father William Jenkins. Father Jenkins is a traditional Catholic priest. He's also a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he is the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you this fine evening? Doing well, Father. Great to be yeah. here. Great to be with you. Know, you we should ask for prayers to start with, right? You've sure. got a lot of the nation under ice and snow, and yes. many in Texas and a large swath of the South, right, without power and in freezing cold and darkness. We know a goodly number of people uh, ourselves, really, who are caught in that right now. So please keep them in your prayers. They uh, stay warm and uh, have the necessities of life and can get through this uh, safely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I need your help there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Father, we have uh, a lot of viewer email that I'd like to try and get through. Um, you know, frequently I will try and um, associate some of the emails that are that are similar similar topics. Um, but we have so many great great emails in our inbox, Father, that are beginning to become rather dated just because they've been in there so long. And so, I would like to just kind of just um, just bounce around and just read straight through uh, some of the emails that we and, have in here. So. And we do appreciate patience. Yes, yes. Uh, and yes. those. Our viewers are the most patient people in the world. I think so. <laughs> Especially those who send us emails. Yes, I think so. Uh, but just a warning, Father, we, we, uh, we might kind of uh, bounce all over the map here, and, and I haven't run a lot of these by you. So. As long as we're still on the map yes. somewhere, time, that's <laughs> yes. fine. Uh, but the first question, Father, here, this uh, viewer says that he has heard the first missiles that Bunini produced were so full of errors that they were ordered destroyed. Do you know if this is true? I don't. I'm not sure exactly how to understand the question. You know, so we're talking about the first missile in terms of the the right of the of the mass or liturgy that he produced. That that was so full of errors against the faith that they were ordered destroyed. <clears throat> um, I wouldn't be surprised, but I don't know that, and I don't know who would have ordered them destroyed, because those who were giving orders at the time, Paul the Sixth and others. Um, seemed quite open to innovation, right? Uh, prevarication and heterodoxy. So I don't know who would have ordered them destroyed if it was, uh, if there were errors against the faith. <clears throat> but maybe, is he referring to errors in the printing, right? Maybe there are errors in the printing of the original missiles that made them useless and so they had to be destroyed because just of the, the the typography was terrible and the you know all of the errors in the typesetting or whatever i don't i don't know so i'm not sure exactly how to understand the question or what errors um, what type of errors uh, this writer is talking about but if um, if he could give us a reference and uh, some uh, background that would be very helpful why because i think it's a very important question and if, if, they, uh, if the fact is that there were so many grave errors either way, I mean, grave errors 
in the composition of the of the missile, grave or the prayers grave errors in the printing of the of the new missile under B and E. Either way, I'd find that very interesting, and I'd like to know more about it. But I I can't verify that. I don't know, and I'm not sure exactly, um, you know, exactly what the question refers to. Okay. <clears throat> All right, uh, next one. Father viewer says, I was very impressed with Archbishop Vigano and his pronouncement that Vatican II must be annulled. My question is this. Was the new code of canon law revised to accommodate the errors of Vatican II and the modernist Periti who promulgated not only the code but the revised catechism? Okay. Now, I'm sorry. I'm not sure I followed that. I, I must admit. Was the new code of canon law revised to accommodate the errors of Vatican II? Well, the new court of canon law certainly did incorporate the the message of Vatican II, the communism. <clears throat> the new court of canon law actually sanctions giving the wafer, right, to uh, non-Catholics yeah. under certain circumstances, which just completely obliterates the whole idea of communion, right? So the Novus Ordo uh, after Vatican II brought in the idea of being in partial communion, whatever that means. They almost they had well they had to redefine faith in order to allow partial communion because the church had always defined the virtue of faith as a supernatural virtue, uh, you know, requiring us to believe what God has revealed in its entirety. The formal cause of that belief is is uh, the the authority of God revealing. If you can believe some of the doctrines revealed by God, and not by all, then you don't believe because of God's authority, which reveals all. If you're free to choose some beliefs, some doctrines, and reject others, then you don't really have faith, not the virtue of faith. Uh, well, the Nova Sordo had to basically scrap that idea of faith. But this co coincides with what St. Pius X wrote in the encyclical condemning the errors of the modernists in 1907, uh, Pascendi de Medici Gregis, uh, said that the modernists redefined the very notion of faith. They laid the axe to the very root of faith itself as a virtue. Mm -hmm. So it's not that modernism is a heresy that denies this doctrine or that doctrine. St. Pius X says it was the complexus of all heresies rolled into one. The very definition of apostasy, really, because it destroyed the whole concept of what faith is <clears throat> as a virtue. And um, so, you know, when you, when you attack the idea of, of being in communion with the church, meaning that you embrace the faith in its entirety and all that God has revealed because God has revealed it, um, when you attack that and you introduce the idea of being in partial communion, uh, basically you see the, the thoughts that are behind the new code of canon law. Um, I just mentioned one example. I mean, the, the, the new code of canon law also undermines the Catholic Church's traditional teaching on matrimony uh, and the essential purposes, primary and secondary essential purposes in matrimony. Uh, the new code of canon law brings in any, any number of things that um, the Church itself has actually formally condemned. Uh, notably, I mentioned notably uh, even the idea of giving Holy Communion to non-Catholics mm -hmm. for any reason. Yeah. Yeah. But there are other problems, needless to say, other problems also. Sure. Okay. Yes, yeah, so I'd say that the new Code of Canon Law was meant to embody 
legal, it's the legal embodiment and the legal application of the principles of Vatican II and the modernists. Okay. Uh, the next one is a uh, question about pride, Father. This viewer says, as a veteran, I'm told that I should be, quote, proud of my military service. But how is one supposed to be proud of something like that if pride is a sin? Uh, he also mentions the Marines, uh, their slogan, the few, the proud, the Marines. So he asked, Father, are the Marines sinning by being, quote, proud? No, I'm, pride has different connotations, right? I mean, as a, as a capital vice, as, as one of the seven capital sins, pride and vanity, it's uh, really ascribing whatever good is in oneself to oneself. And that's what Satan did. That's what Lucifer did, right? Mm -hmm. uh, consummate pride of basically taking credit to himself of whatever good was in him. But um, no creature can do that uh, because even the, the creature's very existence, he derives from the will of Almighty God, right? Mighty, Almighty God wills him into existence. So the creature, any creature, um, can... Uh, not even take credit for his, for his own existence, right? Uh, let alone uh, pretend that he'll be his own god. Um, so there's a, a sense of pride in the sense, in this way, that what we admire, what we love, and justly so, right? We, we love our country, we admire our country, we don't canonize our country, we don't claim that it is, put it in the place of God, right? as the Third Reich uh, tried to do under the Nazis, as the uh, communists do with the party, the Communist Party, put it in the place of God. Um, but uh, we have a certain loyalty to our family, we should. It's called the virtue of piety. We have a certain loyalty to our country. That's also called the virtue of piety. And uh, we should not be ashamed of these things, right? Uh, there are good goods and virtues there, and we should be pleased with them and want to be associated with them. We don't attribute the good that is there to ourselves um, as though this is our work and we get all the credit for it. Rather, there's a certain kind of pride that is actually born of humility, oddly enough, and that is the pride that wants to be associated with what is good takes delight in being associated with what a good, is good, takes um, a certain satisfaction in, in actually being part of that good um, and contributing to it, right? There's, that's, all, that's all beneficial. There's nothing vicious about that. And so uh, insofar as there is a Marine who says, these are the Marine Corps' ideals, <clears throat> this is what the Marine Corps stands for. And this is all good. It's all virtue. Um, and so I am pleased to be associated with that, to be deemed, um, quote-unquote, worthy to be associated, to be part of that, and to be called upon to contribute to it. If they call that pride, well, it's not pride in the same sense of Lucifer's pride. Okay. All right. Um, this next question is... Um, from uh, this viewer references one of the one of uh, Saint Paul's epistles where uh, he says, by the way, if I may, yeah. you know, that in this way, a traditional Catholic might say, "Well, I'm proud to be a traditional Catholic. I'm also humbled 
to be a traditional Catholic. Sure. They can say that in the same sentence, mm. <laughs> you know, because they're saying, I, I believe the faith is the true faith and that this is the way to be loyal to my God and to serve him as he, as he wishes, right? And at the same time, I realize my unworthiness, but God has, it by his goodness, called me. Um, and my pride is really not a matter of being proud of myself. Rather, I'm humbled by the fact that uh, he, the great and loving Savior, uh, has given me to know, know him and to love him and serve him in the true faith. So I'm actually really proud of him, what I'm really saying. Um, a Catholic might be proud to be a Catholic. If he's proud of what it means to be Catholic and humbled by the fact that he is associated with that and part of that. Mm-hmm. So I just thought I'd add that. Sure, yeah. Um, then this next one, Father, um, he provides a quote from one of St. Paul's epistles where... Uh, St. Paul writes that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those that are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that the Lord Jesus Christ is in the glory of God the Father. And so he asked, Father, when St. Paul says under the earth, does he mean those in purgatory or those who are in the hell of the damned? He says those who are in hell wouldn't bow the knee to Jesus while on earth, but does St. Paul mean that they will bow the knee to Jesus in the afterlife? Well, actually, that's a very good question. I don't necessarily know the answer to that question, how to interpret that exactly. But he says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend, right? And uh, I'd have to check it in the, in the Greek original to know exactly what the terminology is there. Um, but uh, just based on the translation there, that every knee should bend or bow, um, he's indicating that uh, you know all creation should show homage to its creator and our Lord Jesus Christ, its redeemer, right? All mankind. Every knee, he's referring to every human knee because our Lord is the redeemer of all mankind and only mankind, really. Um, so um, does he indicate that the souls in hell are bending the knee even now at the name of Jesus. Well, in the first place, the name of Jesus is probably not even mentioned in hell. Why? Because they hate that name, and it torments them to hear it. Um, I mentioned before uh, that the great exorcist, Father Gabriel Amort, the great exorcist of Rome, uh, reported that uh, you know in, in exorcisms, uh, Demons would, would groan and complain, we, we suffer more here, that is during the exorcism, than we would in hell. And when Father Omort asked them, well, well then why don't you let this person go, release this person and go to hell where you'll suffer less? He said he got the answer from the demons, truly a demonic answer, we are here to make this person suffer. And this is how they think. It's a really twisted, evil thinking. And um, so, but it, it occurred to me uh, as I read this account, to think, well, why would the demon suffer more during an exorcism than he would in hell? I realized, well, of course, during an exorcism, he's confronted with what is holy. And what is holy tortures him. The worst punishment God could give to a, a condemned soul is to force that soul to stand in his divine presence in the beatific vision forever. I mean, it would be the 
worse than annihilating itself if it could. It couldn't, though. But that would be the supreme torture to know that it had rejected this great love of God. And um, so, in any case, um, the, um, the souls in hell, no doubt, do not take the name of Jesus. They'd be torturing themselves by it. In exorcisms here on earth, they are confronted with the holy name and all that is holy. I mean, our Blessed Mother, St. Saint Michael the Archangel, St. Joseph, uh, holy water, you know, the sacramentals. They're confronted with all these holy things. And what is it that compels them to, to leave, to let go finally, to, to release their grip? And that is that they are confronted with these holy things. And finally, they, they just flee back to hell to get away from them bury themselves in hell again. So, uh, no, I don't think the souls in hell are bending the knee, and on top of that, they don't have any knees. There, there are no bodies in hell, right? So when uh, Lucia at Fatima saw the vision of hell, she saw the souls of the condemned, the demons, just as buffeted about as sparks in a fire, aimless and sh- just shrieking madly, but having no, as she said, equilibrium. They were just completely out of control. Um, again, a humbling and humiliating uh, scene and, and experience for them. Um, so again, there are, there are no knees in hell to bend. You know, not of angels, not of, not of human souls. In the future, <clears throat> will they hear the name of Jesus and will they, uh, have the, after the resurrection, be bending knees in hell? I don't know they'll be bending much of anything. I, I don't know. They, uh, they'll be, you know, some of the, those who've seen their places in hell talk about places being very fixed. Um, and um, the vision that uh, Lucia had of hell uh, indicates that she saw the souls represented there. But, of course, bodies were not there. So uh, we know the souls will agree, and the bodies will be reunited with the souls, and um, they will suffer, but I don't know that they'll be bending any knees, as I say, because they won't be invoking the holy name in any way. Um, They're spending too much time cursing themselves and each other. Um, So no, I I don't think that indicates that in hell there will be that reverence shown to God. All right. Uh, next question, uh, Father. We we've spoken before of the um, of different translations of the Bible, but this viewer asks, "What about the uh, what is what is your opinion of the more modern translations of the Bible, such as the New American Bible or the Revised Standard Catholic Edition? Are they reliable or are they to be avoided?" I think they should be avoided. Myself. I mean, I I think any Catholic should be looking at the traditional translations that go back before Vatican II. Uh, the Hadoc Bible, the uh, Douay Reims, as it's called, right? Ram. The Douay version of the uh, translation, I think that is very reliable. I, I even question the confraternity, you know, in addition. I don't know of any great deviations in it, but still, I mean, any attempt to modernize it, I think, kind of detracts from the translation. It raises a very important question, Tom, because, you know, since um, I was reading uh, recently that over the last few years, there have been, there's been an explosion of translations of 
the Bible into English. Mm. Well, probably in, in not just English, but in other languages too. And you know, when you hear that, that there's an explosion of translations, you wonder, but why are they continually retranslating it, retranslating it? Uh, they find translations that exist inadequate, and they think they can do a better job of it. Well, if they find the translations that exist inadequate, does that mean they say, well, no, it doesn't mean that? Is that their problem, that they say, well, no, those translations are poor because they misrepresent what our Lord actually said or meant, <clears throat> and so they're going to give it another try? Well, what this does is emphasize the importance of our Catholic faith, because we realize that God has given authority on earth to the true Catholic Church of history, <clears throat> not the modernists who have seized power as usurpers in the Vatican now, but the true Catholic Church, going way back, you know, even to the uh, 300s and, beyond, and earlier, to know what exactly are the scriptures that belong to the Bible, what are inspired. It was the Catholic Church that actually first stated that by her supreme authority given to her by Christ, what books actually belong in the Bible, what books are actually inspired. And that required a judgment, and that judgment was not made by God. He didn't give us a list. So he had to give us the authority, and he gave us that authority in the church. But that authority, historically, has been rejected by the Protestants and the Orthodox, and, and they're, cutting, they're pulling the rug right out from under themselves. They're just cutting the floor away under themselves. <clears throat> because all they've got now is just a bunch of people kind of going to translating the scriptures for themselves, everybody in the course of translating it for themselves, interpreting it for themselves, according to the meaning that he th or she thinks it should have, and it's chaos. And uh, for the, someone to claim that uh, sacred scripture is all that Christ gave us, and then to have the translation wars going on, uh, and uh, providing like dozens and dozens of different translations with actually dozens and dozens of shades of meaning, differing chains of meaning, well, you're losing a lot in the translation there. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what our Lord does not want. And that's why he gave sacred tradition with sacred scripture, that uh, the two would reinforce each other. You take the sacred tradition, the authority that our Lord gave to the apostles, right, and that they had passed on <clears throat> to others um, by apostolic succession, you take that away, and there's, it can't stand, you know. The, the sacred tradition and sacred scripture are like the two legs on which a man stands, right? And, um, and so it is with the church that uh, Christ endowed his church with that authority. And um, outside of that true traditional Catholic church, that authority doesn't exist. Right. So they are basically left to their own resources, and their own resources don't work. Right. Okay. Uh, next question is a little bit longer, Father, but I'm interested to hear your response to this. Uh, he says that Father Jenkins claims it is a legitimate theological opinion to hold that Francis is not the Pope, and also uh, does not claim the authority to settle this question definitively. But how can one reconcile this with the traditional doctrine of universal and peaceful acceptance which teaches that a papal claimant's legitimacy is infallibly certain when he has been peacefully accepted as pope by at least a moral <coughs> unanimity of Catholics. Once this acceptance has been established, 
one cannot doubt that person as Pope and that we can be certain that all the requirements to be Pope, namely that they are baptized Catholics, were met. Since Francis has been recognized as Pope when he was presented to the world as such, that is an infallible sign that he truly is the Pope, according to the theologians. If he were not a true Pope, this worldwide acceptance would not have been allowed to happen. So, Father, how would you respond to that idea of uh, this universal worldwide acceptance? I say it actually ignores the facts. Such as? Such as. There's been a revolution. There's been a revolution in the church. It's called Vatican II. If we ignore that, if we ignore that the modernists have taken over the positions of authority, um, if we ignore that uh, there is a new faith called modernism, and it has spawned a new religion called the Novus Ordo, the New Order, if we can just ignore that as though that doesn't count, then we can say, oh, okay, well, you know, the church accepted uh, Francis as, as the Pope, and that's the end of it, right? But suddenly, if we realize that there's been a revolution, a revolution that was actually... Um, uh, we were forewarned about, you know, and Papias X made a very clear statement of what that new faith would be and described what that new church and new religion would be long before it happened. Then uh, we begin to see that universal and peaceful acceptance is not what it might appear to be any more than the acceptance of uh, resident Biden, you know, is necessarily a universal and peaceful acceptance, right? That there's more to it than that. And so, um, you know, if, if you say, well, those who are practicing the traditional Catholic religion and those who still believe the traditional Catholic faith, and you ask the question, well, did they? Did they have universal and peaceful acceptance of Francis? And the answer is no, no. they didn't. Absolutely not. And so, if you think, well, whether you have the faith or not, and whether you're practicing the Catholic religion or not, the fact that you accepted Francis is all we need to declare him uh, infallibly the true pontiff, then you might be able to get away with that. But there are those who don't believe that's true. There are those who actually believe that universal and peaceful acceptance refers to those who actually still hold fast to the traditional Catholic faith and those who are still practicing the traditional Catholic religion, the Mass and the sacraments. And that is not Francis. And what we see happening here, I think, is proof positive of the idea that there was not universal and peaceful acceptance because they are having to constantly move the goalposts, (laughs) as it were, well, not only are they moving the goalposts, they're, they're actually knocking down the walls of the stadium in order to make room for Francis and explain how a man who does not have the Catholic faith and actually m- manifestly rejects the traditional Catholic faith, how he doesn't n- need the faith to be the Pope. You have to have the Catholic faith to be a Catholic, but you don't have to have the Catholic faith to be a Pope. Is <clears throat> basically where they are right now. That's basically where they're right now. They had to actually change the definition of the papacy 
and the, and the requirements, the qualifications to be a pope in order to fit Francis in the white cassock and fit him somewhere in the papal apartments. <laughs> and uh, and uh, that, I think, is a very clear indication that when they have to start redefining the office of the papacy to suit Francis, um, then, then you know there's something gravely, gravely wrong here. Uh, I don't consider that to be universal and peaceable acceptance, I think, from the very beginning, especially in the light of the developments uh, from John the Twenty-Third onward. There's been a growing awareness among the Catholic people, a growing unease among those who still have the faith, uh, that uh, we have to re return to Catholic tradition um, because the Novus Ordo is not Catholicism. And um, there are those, you know, you know, Tom, even back when, I mean, in the early days after my ordination, I, I would ask people, just out of curiosity, uh, what they thought of, um, let's say, Paul VI and so on, John Paul II and so on. And, uh, <clears throat> So many of the people I talked to, whether they were conservative Novus Ordo or traditional, said they didn't know what to think. They didn't know what to think. You know, they weren't ready to say, well, I'm convinced absolutely he's not the Pope, but they were not ready to say that he's they were convinced he absolutely was the Pope, too. A lot of the Catholic people were kind of really, uh, what should I say, puzzled by it, as though they realized they were facing a dilemma and even a crisis of conscience, eventually. So, no, I don't believe there was universal and peaceful acceptance of Francis. Right. If anything, uh, there was a great doubt about him in the beginning, and it's just gotten more so. Right. All right. Uh, this next viewer says she is curious. Did the Society of St. Pius X issue any statements about Vigano's bombshell on Vatican II? In many ways, he came out stronger than Archbishop Lefebvre. Mm -hmm. The reason I ask is, to me, it seems like Vigano gave everyone a strong dose of reality, and this comes on the heels of the society seeking the approval of Rome. So does this put them at odds with Vigano, or does the Society of St. Pius X agree with Vigano, or do you know, Father, what their position is? I don't know. I really don't know. Did they refer to him? I don't know. Maybe early on they did. I, I really haven't been kept giving up on their stance on Archbishop Vigano. Mm -hmm. I would expect, although if I could venture a guess, that the Society of St. Pius X might have been encouraged by Archbishop Vigano's statements originally, but I would expect that they would be distancing themselves from him now, as he is distancing himself from Francis. <clears throat> I think they'd find it uh, contrary to their shall I say, political aspirations, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Uh, to be accepted and in the good graces of Francis, to, uh, to distance themselves from Archbishop Vigano mm -hmm. and uh, sort of classify him as sort of a renegade. Um, you know, the Society of St. Paul X has, is pursuing a policy that basically puts them on par with, uh, well, actually, it doesn't even put them on par with. Uh, the Chinese Communist uh, so-called Catholic Church that Francis approves of. You know, originally the agreement, the Vatican and Chinese Communist Party agreement that still has not been made public, uh, allegedly, uh, you know, gave the Vatican uh, the final right of approval over Communist Party bishops that they, 
CCP, Communist, Chinese Communist Party, nominated. And, uh, but now the new agreement, well, the new statement out of Communist China <clears throat> governing um, religious bodies within China makes no allowances for that. The Vatican have anything to say about the communist bishops being placed in charge of the so-called you know, Catholic Church in China with Francis's blessing and Peril and the Secretary of State's blessing. So, you know, the Saudi Simpice tent seems okay with that. And they seem to think, well, you know, we, we want our bishops to be accepted by the Vatican. And so, that would be a wonderful thing for them to be able to, I mean, take their place next to the communist Chinese Catholic bishops too, right? And, and say, we're all, we're all one now. We're all together. We're all sitting at the same table. The communist Chinese bishops, chosen by the Communist Party of China now, have a higher standing in Francis's church than the Society of St. Pius X bishops. <clears throat> and the Society of St. Pius X bishops is aspiring to somehow <clears throat> be accepted into that, into that club. How is that possible? How is that possible that they would even suggest such a thing, even think such a thing, and yet that's basically where they're trying to go, what they say they're trying to do anyway. So, um, in any case, um, I don't know where Archbishop Vigano would fit into that because he's denouncing it all. Yeah. Wow. Hey, um, next email, Father. Uh, this year asked for some clarification concerning uh, all of the, the different women named Mary in the Gospel. <clears throat> he references uh, John nineteen twenty five, where um, obviously there was Mary, the mother of our Lord, but um, <clears throat> also St. Mary Magdalene was, of course, involved and in the story. And he says that the, the Gospels also reference one Mary, the sister of Mary, who's also Mary of Cleophas. Yeah, so, Father, how, how can we... Um, how can we sort out all, all these different women named Mary? Could you give us a list of all of the different women named I cannot. Mary? Okay. <laughs> but I can understand why the name Miriam is very, was, was very popular. I mean, it goes back to um, the sister of, well, basically, the, it was the wife of Aaron, right? It was it Miriam? And uh, even goes back to, um, you know, the, the promise of the, the woman who would bring the Savior into the world, right? Mm -hmm. Um Genesis 3, chapter 15, the noble woman, right? A woman would uh, come into the world who uh, would be the enemy of Satan. Uh, this sentence was directed to Lucifer himself in the garden after the, after the fall, precipitated by his temptation. <coughs> so it's understandable why there'd be many women who would be named that by their parents, <coughs> in honor of that uh, great title and the great prophecy. I mean, after all, we, we find in the Bible many variations of the name Yeshua. I mean, Joshua and Jesse and, uh, you know, they're all translated differently, but they all go back to the root for the Savior, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's only one true Savior who is not just given that name as an honorific <clears throat> title, but there's only one true Savior who's given that name by God because it is exactly his identity, right? The, the, the true Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. But there are many in the, in the course of uh, the Old Testament who um, honored that, that name, that, that, that prophecy also.
Right. So yeah. even today, I mean, there are still many in the Hispanic yeah. world that take that name, the holy name. They don't necessarily honor it, <laughs> but uh, would that they would. Right. right. <clears throat> Next email, Father. I, um, I guess there, there might not be a lot. By the of way, if, if this uh, writer would want to catalog yeah. the names, I can't help but think that someone has, though, because there are yeah. dictionaries of the Bible. And some of them, you know, the old, good, reliable ones. You look at the name Mary or Miriam, and you, you'll find a, a list of all the references there. So uh, someone already has listed the names of all the yeah. Marys in the, in the Bible. You can be sure of it. Yep. Okay, well, I, I wanted to read this email, Father. I guess it's, it's um, more of a statement than a question, but it's from a very, very faithful viewer, and so I wanted to, um, to, uh, to have their input here. And he writes in and says, Father Jenkins, we always look forward to new WCB postings. With everything that is happening in our state and our country right now, it is important that we keep informed as to how it will affect uh, the church. Therefore, the discussion of current events has become a necessary part of your program. It is particularly enlightening when you connect these events to the history of our faith. In a re recent episode, your comparison of the statue destruction that is currently taking place with the destruction of our churches during the aftermath of Vatican II was a very powerful indictment of the revolution in our church at that time. Anyone who is a student of history surely can see the earmarks of revolution in the events of today. And as you clearly pointed out, the similarities to post-Vatican II are plain for all to see. We try to encourage conservative Catholics to watch WCV in the hopes that they may have their eyes opened. I personally would like the discourse to focus on our faith. When you answer questions regarding the lives of the saints, for instance, I find that very instructive. I consider questions regarding topics like ethnic Gnosticism and Zionism to be less worthy of your time. Your knowledge of Catholicism and its history is remarkable, and sharing that, uh, that knowledge with your audience is a gift to us. So thank you, Father Jenkins, for all that you do. God bless you. Well, thank you. God bless you also, and thanks for the input. I appreciate that. It, yeah. it helps to get some, uh, you know, uh, useful, helpful, and I would say valuable critique there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And well-meaning critique, too. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. All right, um, this next email, Father, is, is a little bit longer, um, but I wanted to read through it all because it all makes some excellent points here, and I believe that you would agree with every word of this. Um, so this viewer says that uh, him and his wife are members of, of one of our parishes, one of the Society of St. Pius V parishes. Um, he says, we both enjoy the What Catholics Believe programs very much. We found them to be very instructive. Uh, my question is this, could you please explain what it is to give or cause scandal? I fear that most do not truly appreciate the severity of this. St. Alphonsus Liguri explains this very easily in his sermons, and he gives examples of how even one scandalous word has caused some to lose their souls. To my understanding, to give or cause scandal either directly or indirectly is to potentially or even actually lead a soul away from God. Having a much better understanding of scandal, I have asked a number of people what they thought the meaning of scandal was, and none of them were able to accurately answer. With the constant use of TV, cell phones, and internet, the exposure to scandalous material is constant and unrelenting and poses such a threat that parents must be extremely critical of any exposure they knowingly allow their children to engage in. St. Alphonsus likens scandal to a beast that has devoured a child. The scandal of Vatican II is no less frightening and damaging, but for those who are uncertain about the changes, I have two quotes. The first is from Father Jenkins himself, who once told me many years ago, 
Quote, if you are ever in doubt, stick with tradition. And the other, uh, also in reference to changes made against the traditional teachings of the one true Catholic Church, is by Frederick Bastiat. And he said, if it even brushes against the law, it violates it. So, Father Jenkins, thank you for all of your hard work in producing what Catholics believe, and I pray that many more are to come. So, a reaction there, Father. Well, being quoted with St. Alphonsus Liguori and Frederick Bastiat is probably a first. Uh, I don't know that either one would be thrilled to be quoted with me, really, but I'd, I'd like to think St. Alphonsus Liguori would not object. <laughs> but uh, actually, what the uh, individual wrote there is very good. I don't know that I could add much to it, really. It's, it's very well stated, um, but except to just kind of highlight the fact that our Lord made it very clear that to scandalize a little one, an innocent one, um, is such a terrible crime and will be judged so severely that, as he said, it would have been better for a person to have been, uh, had a millstone tied around his neck and be thrown over overboard to drown in the depths of the sea rather than live to give scandal that uh, perishing like that would be the lesser of two evils than to live to give scandal. Another place our Lord says, if your right hand scandalize you, uh, meaning lead you into sin, right? Cut it off and throw it away. Consider it to be uh, like your, your worst enemy, even your eye. You know, your right eye scandalize you, cut it off, throw it away. Now our Lord wasn't recommending that we cut our hands off or, our, or, or you know, pluck our eyes out. He doesn't want that. That would be a sin against the uh, fifth commandment, of course. He wants us to appreciate the gravity of scandal and how horrible it is. <clears throat> so um, we have to take that very seriously. Archbishop Sheen said that the difference between a bad man and an evil man is that the bad man profits from doing bad things, but the evil man actually enjoys destroying innocence and corrupting innocent souls. And uh, that's what Satan does. Right? He has nothing to gain except for the satisfaction, whatever it affords him, of corrupting the evil because that feeds his pride and makes him say that when now I am your Lord, you have chosen me um, as your Lord and Master. So um, we have to be aware of that. Now one can give scandal also to those who are already corrupted. You know, you might have a, of a young person who smokes marijuana with his friends, and you say, well, you're giving scandal, and he might say, well, they're, they're doing it anyway. They do it without me anyway. Yeah. Say, well, okay, <clears throat> but the fact is that you as a Catholic has a special obligation, uh, not only not to encourage them by doing it with them, but you have a, a special obligation to try to convince them not to do that because it's mortally sinful, very damaging to themselves both body and soul, bodily and soul. So in any way, uh, so that is giving scandal already to those who are corrupted to begin with. But the corruption of those who are innocent and teaching them to sin, to offend God, is a horrible crime. Um, and even after one repents of it, and if truly repents, and, and God will not condemn them to eternal punishment for it, there's still an enormous price to pay in purgatory for the, uh, some, the uh, temporal punishment due to sin because of the consequences of what they've done, you know, in this world even. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a horrible thing. And um, I think uh, this uh, lady or gentleman 
is really on the mark and saying we need to inform our young people about the responsibility they have for their actions, their words. Uh, insofar as they have influence over others, they're going to be answerable to God, whether they led them to our Lord or led them away from our Lord, mm-hmm. drove them away from our Lord. Terrible responsibility. Yep. Well, maybe we can just get through a couple more of these. Father, um, one of our viewers wanted to know if you are familiar with uh, Father Paul Kramer and his book entitled The Mystery of Iniquity. Uh, yes, well, I've heard of it. I haven't read it. Though. Okay, okay. I, Father Kramer's one book, The Devil's Final Battle, uh, is probably, well, better known, I believe, yeah. at least uh, in former times. Have you read this? Uh, no. Okay. okay. The Mystery of Iniquity. Yeah. Okay, that must be a more recent release, I guess. And, uh, uh, do they recommend it? Is that what they say? He does, yes. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. I'd be interested. Yeah, okay. Um, well, Father, we actually had a, a couple uh, different emails where um, viewers just sent us links to, to various articles um, exploring this kind of recent um, trend of artificial intelligence uh, and, and religion and the various uh, world's religions. And so some of our viewers wanted to get your, your reaction to this. There, there's such things now as these kind of AI robots who are acting as priests, uh, so-called, and, and, and various, uh, some of the more Eastern religions and whatnot. So just kind of in general, Father, what is your reaction to this, this idea of AI and its role in, in modern religion? It ha- well, in modern religion? Okay, modern and modernist religion? They might as well. <laughs> they might as well create robots, yeah. right? Um, they have no power, no power from God, no power from Christ. They're the only powers they have are those who program them. That's it. They can do nothing um, except hurt, you know. And let's face it, I mean, if, if Satan can take over and possess a human being who has the power of will to resist, then what would it be for Satan to um, take over a jukebox or a vending machine, some glorified vending machine? What's well, AI? I mean... <laughs> It'd be no challenge. The, the thing has no will of its own, right? Mm-hmm. So Satan could easily possess one of those things without any opposition at all and not have to factor. You know, and especially if people put their confidence in this thing, like some kind of oracle, uh, that, like an eight ball, <laughs> like a yeah. high-tech eight ball, turn it over and get the, get the answer. Um, uh, this is just ready-made for, for the powers of hell to move right in. Say, I mean, who's to say that the powers of hell aren't behind that technology in the first place? If they're going to make us feel godlike, that we're going to create, <laughs> we're going to create our own, our own race, right? Um, I mean, it's it's evil. It's all evil. Yeah. It's transhumanism. What do they call us? Transhumanism. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's the human race. Wanting to just devour itself. Yeah. You know, it's like self hatred in the human race. Yep. All right. Um, this one is interesting, Father. This viewer asks if head coverings for women and uncovering the head for men, is that something that a valid Pope could overturn, seeing that it is mandated in Scripture? It's an apostolic tradition. Pope can't turn that over. Really? No. Okay. Okay. No, a Pope could just dispense with it. I, under certain circumstances, but to, to do away with it entirely is an apostolic tradition. I mean, even when 
Paul VI was raising the question of the Friday abstinence. Even he acknowledged this is an apostolic tradition. We can't do away with it. And Catholics should still follow it. But if the circumstances are such that for whatever reason there's a, there's a grave cause to deviate from the Friday abstinence, that a Catholic can do that as long as he or she substitutes some other uh, equal penance. That's required. I mean, none of us sort of clergy will never tell you that, unfortunately. Well, it's one of the thousands of things they will never tell you, right? Mm -hmm. So um, <clears throat> why would they emphasize that when they're doing all the other things they're doing? But anyway... Um, but actually, if one looks at the decree of Paul VI, or the, um, the, the act of Paul VI about the Friday abstinence, in which he supposedly did away with it, he acknowledged it's an apostolic tradition, and he didn't do away with it. <clears throat> he just kind of commuted it under certain circumstances, but required that Catholics who took advantage of, of that leniency would substitute some equal penance. Right. But are they doing that? I don't know they're even aware of it, or care. Yeah. Um, so no apostolic traditions cannot simply summarily be, uh, you know, reversed, annihilated. <laughs> That's not what the papacy is on, is for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe we can end with this one, Father. I think this is a great uh, question. Rather interesting. Uh, this viewer says that uh, as a Scottish Presbyterian who holds firmly to the Westminster Confession of Faith. I am diametrically opposed to many of the theological beliefs held by the Society of St. Pius V. However, I also wholly agree with the Society of St. Pius V on issues of church standards and morality and their need to break away from any religious body not holding to them. My question is this, though. If there were corruptions in Rome in the time of Wycliffe and Luther and Calvin and Knox, why would it not have been right for them to protest those corruptions and split when they would not be remedied, just as the Society of St. Pius V split? Uh, when they too saw moral and theological um, <clears throat> problems. I hope this message finds you all well, and though I may disagree with many things, I enjoy listening to your program each week. Wycliffe, Horst, and the rest of them denied the apostolic faith. They weren't just protesting abuses. Uh, they were actually attacking and corrupting the faith. That was the problem. I mean, there were others in the Catholic Church who were protesting the abuses, um, at the time, but they didn't break with the faith. That's the problem with the heretics. I'd like to know what this uh, good soul uh, disagrees with. You know, we should have some meaningful dialogue about that, <laughs> find out what the problem is there. Um, but, uh, uh, no, we have an expression of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> and uh, they weren't just throwing out the dirty bathwater. They were throwing out the baby with it. <laughs> and that's why the church had to, had to condemn their teachings, because they were false. They were attacks on the faith. I mean, you can attack the faith, one, by giving scandal, by teaching it but not living up to it. You, if you teach it and not live up to it, you're basically signaling people that, you know, uh, either you really don't believe it or the faith is, the faith is responsible for the evils you're doing. And you're, you're tarn tarnishing the, the, the very image of the faith in the minds of the people by your own immoral life. But then there are those who uh, attack the faith by simply denying it outright because others are not living up to it. And, uh, and they're giving scandal. And uh, so um, 
the fact is that's what Wycliffe, Huss, and the rest were doing, Calvin and so on. Uh, they were actually attacking the faith. It can be proven. Uh, it can actually be proven that their doctrines are false. They are not apostolic, are not scriptural, certainly are not traditional, but it can be proven that they're not scriptural without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, and anyone who would be willing to listen, I think, and think and uh, uh, not react viscerally or, uh, what should I say, out of emotion, anybody who would actually just look at the evidence, I think they'd, they'd realize yeah, the, the doctrines of Wycliffe, Huss, and the rest of them are, are wrong. That they're not the teachings of Jesus Christ. Okay. So, I will. But Father. that's where our uh, friend yeah. <laughs> disagrees. But right. if we got a chance to discuss that, we might um, make some progress. Yeah. <laughs> like the opportunity. Yeah, definitely. Father, uh, anything on your mind that you'd like to close with? Yeah, tomorrow is Ash Wednesday. That's pretty big. It's pretty big. Uh, starting out of the land, thank God that we can. Okay, thank God that we can. And uh, let's make this the best Lent of our lives. Why? Because God is giving us the grace to make this the best Lent of our lives. What does that mean? We follow the laws of the church with regard to fast and abstinence in all humility, right? We mortify ourselves before God, like the people of Nineveh did, who humbled themselves. And um, God had mercy on them. So we need to beg for mercy for ourselves, our families, our country. And um, we should uh, follow the practices of our faith in terms of the, the penitential practices of uh, the stations of the cross. Uh, of course, receiving the ashes, right? Signifying what they do, are humbling ourselves before Almighty God and admitting our fault, begging His mercy. So uh, anyway, Involve your children, too. Involve your children in learning how to discipline themselves, mortify themselves, humble themselves as well. Give them, help them to figure out what they can do for Lent. They're not obliged to fast. If they're under the age of seven, they're not obliged to abstain either. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, even the, the very concept, we have to inculcate the very concept of humility and our... Uh, Basically, um, recognizing the sovereignty of God uh, in, in our very children. They have to grow up with that. It has to develop from the very earliest days. And uh, Lent is an excellent time to teach that. One, one exercise that I do recommend every year is uh, based upon the epistle of last Sunday. Quinquagesima Sunday, the epistle is taken from the first epistle of St. Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 13. And I recommend that that be read aloud um, for the family each day. I recommend that our grown-ups um, copy that and carry that with them and pray that each day with the intention of actually committing it to memory so that by the end of the Lenten season, they know it by heart because it's basically the moral theology manual of the Catholic Church. What, what do we have to do to be saved? Well, St. Paul spells it all out right there. What is necessary for the salvation of a soul? What do we have to do to practice our faith, to be loyal and faithful to our Lord, and fulfill His holy will? It's all spelled out right there. Absolutely. 
So. Well, Father, thank you for being here tonight. Appreciate all uh, your time. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. Yep, no problem. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.